I hope everyone is well today. Uh, Joe says to say hello from Mississippi. He is visiting his brother today. And um, does that mean? Try that again. Are we good? All right. Uh, but he says to say hello. He's visiting his brother and his family down there over fall break. And uh, said he missed seeing everyone and would certainly miss worshiping with us today. So... We're going to continue our series through 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. We're going to be in 1st Samuel chapter 29 and 30 today, but just to kind of get our heads uh, running around a word today, uh, I want to tell you a little bit of history. I love history, especially some of the novel parts of it. But in 1637, King Charles, the King of England, commissioned what would be the largest, most powerful, and most ornate ship ever built to that point in history. She cost roughly $13 million in that day's money. So just fathom that. Um, One million of that went to gold gilding to completely gold encase her carvings. So just think of that. A thirteenth of the ship went just to gold decorations. She carried 102 cannons. She was designed for 90. Charles didn't think that was enough, so he added 12 more. Most of them had a 6-inch bore. They shot uh, around a 40-pound iron ball, many of which were laden with explosives, so they would then blow up. There was not a port yet built in the world that could house such a large ship. So if there were to be any repairs or anything like that, she was equipped with gigantic anchors and chains because she would have to port out at open sea there was nowhere she could go she was staffed by 400 to 500 sailors at a time depending on her mission charles named her the sovereign of the seas asserting that he could control and rule over the entire ocean system of the world she served but she ended up being so large she became known as the fragile ship because of her heavy weight in cannons and decorations, she was constantly having to be lightened to be of any use. And then, by this time, 1697, Charles is gone. She's sitting at a port. She burned because someone dropped a candle on her. Sovereign she was not. Beautiful, amazing, powerful but powerful to control her own fate, she was not. There's been a resurgence in this, this word sovereign. There's, there's a, a gentleman, uh, as best as I can trace it back, there's, there's even hints of this in Nietzsche, but a guy named Simon Black, who's a financial advisor, has declared what he calls to be the sovereign man. He, he says we should be, and he's particularly speaking to males at this, we should be able to control our finances in such a way, we should be able to control our bodies and keep healthy and be strong, lead in such a way that we set our course for life. Um, there's a lot of what he says that's really wise and planning for our health is, our finances and, and taking care of our health. But think about this. Simon Black or any of these other gurus of, of this tradition is still susceptible to cancer. And there will be a day when he lays on a bed and other people take care of him as he goes to meet his maker. We want to have that control. We want to have that independence. We want that power to say, I'm going to do this and no one can stop me. 
But when we look back to the Scriptures, and we're going to particularly look at David and Saul today, mostly David, I want us to see that David was not the... He may have been the king, at least anointed king, but he wasn't the guy in charge. God was sovereignly working. God was the one in control. God was the one directing paths and steps. And David was along for the ride. And at times he rode well, and at times he rode very, very poorly. So just to kind of catch everybody up where we're at in the story, again, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 29. So we are almost done with 1 Samuel. But don't worry, there's a whole other one. Um, Joe's going to hit that next week. But we've loved this series. But this has been a challenging series to preach because we see these heroes of the faith. David was worse than I ever dreamed. When they're really, you know, you, you, I've read this before, but when you really get in and say it, I mean, this guy was messed up, just like all of us. He's a hero of the faith, and that's right and good. But he's got himself in perhaps his lowest of lows. He has run and attempted to get away from Saul. Saul is the, the reigning king. And Saul has gone nuts and is attempting to kill David. He sought him out for over a decade now. He, he was sitting in a room and would just randomly pick up a spear and throw it across a dining hall at David, leaving many holes in the wall, the Bible says. And David has run. He's hid with everybody he can think to hide. He hid with all his friends. Then he hid in the desert. None of that's working. Saul is just continuing to chase him and chase him and chase him. And so finally, David says, where is the last place Saul would look? Oh, with our arch enemies, the Philistines. Remember David, the Philistine, you know, David and Goliath? Those guys, the Goliath guys. So David has run, and, and truly he has become a traitor. He is living with the Israelites' greatest enemies. I mean, this would be like someone saying, I need to hide from the Americans, so I'm going to go join the Taliban. This is what David has done, and he has lied and lied and lied, and he has got in so deep that Achish, the king, thinks David is a complete traitor, has turned allegiances, and is now serving the Philistines and the Philistines only. And so Achish has decided he's going to go out and wipe out these silly Israelites for the last time and has hired David and his 600 not very merry men to be his personal mercenary bodyguards. So David is now faced with the choice of become an actual traitor and destroy his people. And the man that he has said, God's put him in place, I will not take him down. Or turn, show his true colors, tell Achish, I'm actually against you, not for you, and risk his life. This is the mess. How could God possibly get David out of this? And we're going to go through the scriptures today, and we're going to see not only has God got this all under control, not only does God get David out of this impossible mess, God is working in David's heart this whole time. God is using this. He's not wasting David's suffering. And he uses David and changes him into the king. By the time we're done with chapter 30 today, David's acting like the king. And the king Israel has always needed. So open up your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 29. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to read through two chapters. They're fairly short, so we're going to read the whole thing today. You will be helped if you've got one of those with you. If you didn't bring one, there's black Bibles in those chair backs in front of you. It's on page 291 
um, page 291. We're going to read 1 Samuel chapter 29. 29, the chapters, the, the big numbers in there. And I want us to see four things about the sovereignty of God today. So, so the first thing we're going to start with, and if you're looking along in your notes, God is sovereign even when you are or look godless. God is sovereign even when you are or look godless. Let's look uh, at 1 Samuel chapter 29 here. Now the Philistines had gathered their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing by the hundreds and thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. So what you have here is basically military parade. Everybody's parading by the king, showing off, we're ready to fight. The commanders, in verse 3, the commanders of the Philistines says, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish, the commander of the Philistines, said, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he has deserted to me, I found no fault into him to this day. I mean, he has got Achish just duped. I mean, Achish, as you read this passage, it looks like an idiot. I mean, he, he's, I, I, don't know, I don't know what he was, but I mean, he looks like a fool in this passage. Right, keep going with me. Verse 4. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back that he may return to the place which you've assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could he, this fellow, reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? In other words, if he wants to get back in with Saul, what's the easiest way to do it? Uh, yeah, my head. We're not going out to fight with him. This is a setup. Verse 5. Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Achish calls David and says to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. Again, not real bright. And to me, it seems right that you should march out and in march out and in with me in the campaign for i have found nothing wrong in you from the days of your coming to me to this day nevertheless the lords do not approve of you so go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the philistines and david said to achish but what have i done other than you know destroy your enemy or other than destroy your people loot from them and lie and say it was my own people what have you found in your servant from this day I entered to your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? It almost sounds like David kind of was planning the whole heads thing. I'm not sure what his, his whole end game here was. It doesn't sound entirely honest. Verse 9. And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Yep. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. This is where the battle was going down. David's got himself between a rock and a hard place. He has got in the unmovable spot where he's betray his people of whom he is to become king 
or, or get himself killed. And God just uses a bunch of guys who are scared for their own necks to say, <laughs> we don't want him with us. The king is duped as duped can be. And God says, no, no problem. We don't see the word God there. As a matter of fact, we haven't seen the word God used in a rightful way, other than like angels of God to describe David, for the last three chapters. And it's because David has been living a godless life, as Saul lived nearly all of his life. David doesn't care what's right and what's wrong. He has completely convinced himself that the end justifies the means, and as long as he is alive and doing okay, so what about how he gets there? He's forgotten who God is. He's forgotten what God can do. And I want us to think just a minute as we go through all of this, is that we're not serving a God who's been neutered. I've had a dog at my house this week, Joe's, and I have a dog that's half his size, that's a, that's a breeder, it's, he's, he's a stud. And, you know, it's amazing how much a little puppy dog can overpower a dog twice his weight, 40 and 78 pounds. We like big dogs. <laughs> Mine's half grown. He wins against Joe's dog, all, and he will not stop because he has the equipment not to. That's the kind of God I fear we often imagine in our heads. A God who, who we put in this little box so we can control and say, yes, I'll, my, I'll pray my prayers, I'll maybe read my Bible, you know, I'll definitely go to church, especially when things are bad. And God bless me, amen. We don't realize we're serving the God who made that blade of grass. We're serving the God who spoke and galaxies were created. We're serving the God who knows the hairs on your head and keeps track of every sparrow that dies. Remember that passage that Jeff read earlier? He calls a bird to flight in the east. What an insignificant, useless piece of information. Were it not that God did it. He's got it controlled even down to the minutia. And so this problem with Achish, that's not a problem. God's got a plan. And he's going to execute this is what we mean by a sovereign God. A sovereign God who is over and controlling everything. I want to read you, um, this is from Bethlehem Baptist Church, This something John Piper wrote. Their statement about what it means that God is sovereign. We believe that God upholds and governs all things, from galaxies to subatomic particles. I love that line. From galaxies to subatomic particles the forces of nature to the movement of nations, and from the public plans of politicians to the secret acts of solitary purpose, persons, all in accordance with his eternal, all-wise purposes to glorify himself, yet in such a way that he never sins nor ever condemns a person unjustly. 
but that His ordaining and governing all things is compatible with the moral accountability of all persons created in His image. We need to not assume our God is a little weak God. We need to remember this is the God who sets up nations and tears them down at His desire. This is the same God who did miracles. This is the same God who's changed so many of your hearts. Remember back to what it took to shift the tide in your own life. This is the God who did that. And so often, our daily lives, we act like He can't change anything. Like He needs our permission to do what He wants. There's a passage in the Old Testament. It's, it's actually a very harsh passage. And it talks about God being the potter and we the clay. And we, we think of these cute, cuddly images. What he's saying is, y'all are a bunch of lumps of clay that's got nothing to you, and I'm going to do whatever I want. I love watching my kids play with Play-Doh. I have two very creative kids. Nathan is going to make something wild. I mean, you, you have no, I mean, they're like, no limits. And Emma's going to be very meticulous and creative and put colors together and all this. But I love watching them play with that. But we got to remember, in this life, we're not the maker. We're the Play-Doh. This is not your life to have. You were bought with a price. You were called with a purpose. We have a sovereign God who has a plan. And somewhere, you're in that plan. It's not about your ways and your plan, though. It is about His. It's about His purposes. It's about His kingdom. And it's about His ways of going about it. And sometimes we completely forgot. I remember uh, in seminary, one of those just pivotal landfall moments in, in my spiritual life. I, I think most of us are, are, we should be kind of growing steadily closer to Christ, right? Most of our lives really look kind of more like this, you know, maybe a dip there. And I mean, it's, it's jumpy. It's, it's not steady as we should be. We're not steady like God. We're not, we're not even keeled. But one of those big jumps for me was in seminary when I was forced to read a book called Desiring God. And if you have never read it, I would challenge you to read this. This is not light reading, okay? This is, again, seminary textbook kind of level. But this is, it's approachable um, in the way it's written, but it is heavy thinking. But Desiring God, I remember coming this page, it's about 32, 33 pages in. I've actually got it at home. I thought about this morning. I should have just bring you the book. There is in all capital letters, the words written, no way this cannot be. Now, I was I mean, I was sitting in my room, angry, sitting on this nasty old blue couch, reading this thing, and just processing somebody getting in my face and saying, yeah, you, you didn't save yourself. God, in His almighty sovereignty, looked out from the beginnings of time and says, I want you. And He worked graciously and kindly to draw my heart to Him. And the more I read in that book, 
I went from yelling at the author to underlining and, and then writing and reflecting. It took me longer and longer and longer to read chapters where I was just consuming this. As we read passages like Isaiah, that's the theme passage for that book, that's the primary passage that book is based upon. As we read passages like this, and I started to see that God doesn't need my permission to do anything. I am not a sovereign man. He is a sovereign God. So let me encourage you. Think about how big and powerful God truly is. Let's keep going with this text. Switch over to chapter 30. Second point. Not only is God sovereign, even when we are godless, or at least look like it, God is sovereignly leading you. And I want this personal. You, like me. You might even write that in there. God is sovereignly leading me to repentance. I'm going to read chapter 30, verses 1 through 8 here. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag, so this is their hometown. This is the town that, that Achish has given them uh, to live in while they're in the Philistine area. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, so they've hiked for three days, the Amalekites, this is another enemy, had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. And they had overcome Ziklag, because all the soldiers were gone, and burned it with fire. Verse 2. And taking captive the women and all who were in it, both great and small, they killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. By the way, catch that. They take an entire town, and how many people die? No one. You think God doesn't maybe have a hand in this? Think of the oddity of this. Verse 3. When David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were around him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to wept. David's two wives, again unwise, we've talked about that in the past. This was sinful. God called one man to be with one woman for a lifetime. But David's two wives, who had taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him. You're in charge. You want to go to war. You want to come to the Philistines. And my wife got kidnapped. My kids got kidnapped. People were turning against him. All because the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Did you catch that? First time in three chapters, somebody mentions God in a correct way. David, in his darkest moment, his wives have been kidnapped. His kids are gone. His, everything he possesses that's not on his body has been burned to the ground or stolen. And he finally turns to God. The God he knew while in the sheep fields. The God he knew while throwing that stone at Goliath. The God he knew who had kept him safe thus far. And the God he knew had just got him out of the impossible mess. He turned back. Perhaps, just maybe, that suffering you're going through, that heartache, the job change, the trouble, the health, perhaps, just maybe, God is grabbing at your heart. He's making that plea for the heart that's been so hard for so many years. Perhaps all this trouble is for great, great good. 
Perhaps it's to get your attention. To make you stop looking at the social media on your phone and convincing yourself that this is all about you. God is working. God is working. And He's drawing you to Himself. Maybe you've been holding out. Maybe you've heard these stories about Jesus. Maybe you've heard the Gospel message that Jesus died for your sins. He rose again and He offers you His righteousness and His forgiveness if you will turn to Him in faith and repentance. Repentance means turning from your sin to Christ. If you will turn to Him and you've been holding out and holding out, or maybe it's that one area of your life, that one sin you've been hiding for so, so long. Does God have your attention yet? He's sovereignly working to bring you to repentance. Let's keep going. Verse 7. And David said to Abathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, he saved this guy earlier from Saul's execution, bring me the ephod. This was the priestly garment. And when they would go and ask God a question, uh, this is what they would wear. So Abathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? Now, now note, two chapters ago, Saul's done the same thing. And God is silent. And Saul's heart is not repentant. But look what God does when he comes to David's repentant heart. When he comes to David, who had strengthened himself in the Lord, God speaks. He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So let me encourage you. However dark you think it might be in your own soul, Jesus' blood can cover that. However unrighteous you think you might be, Jesus' righteousness is greater. Whatever it might be that you have done, there's forgiveness. There is hope in Christ. When you are deep like David, turn back to God like David. If you are alive, he's going to receive your repentance. He's not done yet. It's not too late. It is not too late. Turn back to God. Don't reason to yourself you're too bad or you've gone too far or your sin is too great. All of our sins are too far. All of us are too bad. And all of us have gone beyond the limits that's why we needed christ to die for us that's why god pursues us in sovereignty because we wouldn't get there in and of ourselves. this is why god has to chase we're dead in our sin apart from him this is why god pursues spurgeon's spurgeon's word is that god is like the hound of heaven It's like a bloodhound chasing after and going through whatever brush and brambles to get to that scent. God is pursuing your heart that way for your repentance. He wants you. Think back with me the story Jesus told in Luke 15. We often call it the story of the prodigal son. Man has two sons. He's very rich. One son, obnoxious, comes to him and says, I kind of wish you were dead and I had your inheritance. Would you give it to me now anyway? He goes, he squanders it, goes to another country. Ironically, about the same place David was. Um, He goes and squanders this money. He ends up living in a pigsty. His job is feeding slop to the pigs. They have these, these caraway pods that he's feeding to the pigs. And he wishes he could get some pig food. 
That's how low he'd gotten. He says, I got to go back. My dad, even my dad's servants aren't this bad. They at least get real food. They get people food. So I'll go back and work for my dad. And he comes back. And it says, as he was far off, the father looking out from that porch sees his son and runs and wraps him up. And he's hollering out to his servants, bring the robe, bring the rings, kill a cow. We're having a barbecue my son's home. This is the message of the Gospel. You are far, but Christ will bring you near if you will turn to Him in repentance. And please don't hear, Christian, please don't hear this as only preached for that person who's not yet a believer. It's preached for you and it's preached for me. God is pursuing our repentance. He is pursuing those secret sins. He's rooting out all that's left in our life. Whether you're 10 or whether you're 90, He's still pursuing you in His sovereignty for your repentance. Let's keep going. Point number three. God in His sovereignty uses repentant sinners. Not only is God sovereign in our godlessness, not only does God use His sovereignty to pursue those who need repentance, does He pursue sinners, but He then uses those who are repentant. Look at me uh, with me in verse number 9. So David set out, and 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, and those who were left stayed behind. In other words, some folks were getting tired. Remember, they've walked three days. They walk another couple, apparently. But David pursued he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. And they found an Egyptian in open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And after he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. In other words, he was nearly dead out in the desert. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? How in the world did you get here? In other words, to whom do you belong and where are you from? He said, I'm a young man from Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. Okay, he's just signed his death sentence here. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against the land which belongs to Judah, against the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. In other words, not, not realizing who he's got here. He's in big trouble. David said to him, will you take me down to this band? He said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land. This is the people who had attacked his family, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. So think about this. 400 come attack. This is such a large army that they kill so many, only 400 get away. And David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing. Did you catch that? Can you imagine someone stealing Everything in your house, they catch, the police catch them, and they still have every single thing, every single dollar they stole from you. It's still right there. God is very sovereign. 
Verse 19, nothing was missing, whether it was great or small, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured the flocks and the herds, and the people drove the livestock before him, saying, this is David's spoil. We're going to get to that. It's actually not David's. He's about to give it away, but we'll come back to this. This section is a colossal oops on the parts of the Amalekites. They leave this mercenary, so he wasn't even part of them anyway. They leave him for dead with a head cold, and God uses that foolhardy error to destroy them and to restore all that David and his men had lost. God saves all these ladies, these kids. He restores an entire town because of David and his men. The David who was the liar, the cheat, and the traitor. God used him. He defeated an army that was massively outnumbering his to the point that the cowardly camel cavalry runs off, and that's it. Everybody else is defeated. But the key here is that God used David. God used David. We'll see later in the next section of this passage, there's still wicked and worthless people among them. But God used them. They were repentant and had turned to them, and God used them. And if God can use them, God can use you. He can use me. 1 Corinthians 5, 17-21. I want you to hear this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, catch that word, anybody. This is not the elite. Anybody is in Christ. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. In other words, when God wants to share his message, he chooses you to deliver it. That person who is far off, who has never heard the name of Jesus, he has chosen you to deliver the message. That coworker who has snubbed you for so long because they know you're a Christian, he has chosen you to deliver his message. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, in other words, we beg you, On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's what we do. That's our whole job. For our our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So let me say something to you, Christian. You may be a new Christian. You may have been a Christian for 60 years. God still has a useful, needed part of His kingdom for you. There are prayers that need to be prayed. There are people who need to hear the gospel. There are people who need your love and your service and your help. You have a task. Whether you're an elementary or you're elderly, God has a job for you. He wants to use you because He's redeemed you. He's made you His creation. And now He wants to display you to the world for His glory. Last thing, 
Don't use God's sovereignty as an excuse to be passive. We'll pick up in verse 21. So not only is God sovereign when you are godless, not only does God use His sovereignty to draw people to repentance, not only does God sovereignly use repentant people, but don't use His sovereignty. Don't think that, oh God, He's got this. I don't need to do anything. Look with me in verse 21. It's kind of an odd passage here. And I have been nervous all week about this passage. There are more weird words in here. I, I speak Hebrew, okay? There's still weird words in this one, all right? So we'll see if I can get through it. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the book Brook Basor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. They're excited. They're hoping their wives are there. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. When all the wicked and worthless fellows among them who had gone with David said, because they did not go out with us, they will not get any part of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead his wife and his children and depart. In other words, we're kicking them out of the band and all they get their wife and kids, they need to get out of here. They failed. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down in the battle, so his share shall, who stays with the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. Catch that. This is so subtle. But do you see what David just did? He's the king. He's making laws and statutes. David, in this little passage, has just accepted and taken on the role God anointed him to probably 20 to 25 years earlier. He said, yeah, God's made me a king. I'm going to act like it. Here's the rule. You're not doing that. You are going to be kind. You are going to be gracious because God has been gracious to us. He is acting. He is active. He's a little fired up from the language here. He's not just saying, oh, oh, well, you know, well, God will take care of it. If he really wants him to have the money, and he'll get him. No, no, you're not doing that. That's wrong. Here's what we're doing. Listen to the rest of this. He doesn't stop there. Verse 26. This is the fun part. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here's a present for you from the spoils of the enemies of the Lord. If for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negev, in Jatir, in Aror, in Siphmoth, in Eshtermoah, in Rakal, in the city, this is the fun one, of the Jeramahelites, and the city of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Bashan, in Achthan, in Hebron, for all these places where David and his men had roamed. Do you see what David does? He's being smart. All this money, he could have kept it for himself, and that's normally what kings did. He says, no, all those people who helped me these decades, here's a little bit for you. Here's some for you. Here's some for you. He sends it all back. Do you see what he's doing? He is setting himself up to be king. Who do you think those guys are going to look to when there's no more Saul? Well, you know, David is supposed to be king. And 
man, look what he did for us. He's out there fighting for me, and I didn't even know it. He, he sends me money back. Man, this guy, when I helped him, he remembered it, and now he's taking care of me. Do you see what David's doing? I mean, he is being a shrewd politician at this point, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in a very good way. He is setting himself up to do what God has called him to do. You know, I've talked with several folks, um, particularly among our teenagers, that, that are interested in talking and praying through missions and what that might mean long term. And the two things I said you need to do right now is one, learn to love and follow God like never before. And two, you need to work hard and read biographies and learn. Read missionary biographies and learn. It's going to take some work on your part. It's going to take some investment. I cannot tell you how many people I talk to who are in seminary who said, oh yeah, I just want to get through this. All I got to do is get this paper because I got to get out there and, and start doing ministry. They weren't taking advantage of the learning that they could get. Or, or people... <clears throat> all across, we usually know them as cult leaders because they usually fly off the deep end, who won't invest in studying God's Word when they want to serve as a pastor or elder. Or maybe you, sitting there today, who know there are fabulous books out there on how to follow God, who know your copy of the Scriptures is just sitting there, but you don't pick it up because you're so busy. David is being wise. He's investing in what he needs to invest. He's working hard to fulfill what God has called him to do. A couple hundred years ago, the first modern missionary, a guy named William Carey, first major modern missionary, wrote a book. He was a pastor. Um, he famously preached his first sermon um, to John Newton. The guy who made Amazing Grace that we sang, John Newton said, this is the worst preaching preacher I've ever heard in my life. You will never preach again in my church. Lord was gracious, used a man named John Sutcliffe to disciple him. He became a pastor, and he starts getting this call to go to the unreached, to those who've never heard the gospel. And in that day and time, people who were, who were mostly doctrinally sound but had this just blind spot that because God was sovereign, they didn't need to share the gospel. God will just save all these people. I mean, He is drawing people to repentance by His sovereignty, is He not? Why do I need to share the gospel? God's got this. He'll send somebody else. He'll do this. He'll just show up to them in a drink. God's got this. I don't need to actually do anything. And, and my summary of the title of William Carey's book, it's like three sentences, the title. But something to the degree of a plea to use means for the conversion of the heathen. In other words, he's begging people around him in the church. We're talking Christians here. He's begging people around him to do something to tell other people about Jesus. To actually do something. We cannot use God's sovereignty as an excuse for passivity. There, there is a point to which the saying, let go and let God, there, there's some truth to that at times. Certainly in salvation. But usually the, the more accurate thing 
is trust God and then work your rear end off. Some of you just think, oh, I've got this pet sin, whether it be pornography or drinking or, or something else, that you've been high, oh, I just, I pray and God doesn't answer my prayers yet. Stop. Pray. Yes. And then get your backside in gear and work hard at it. Get some brothers around you to help. Get some sisters around you to help you through it. And press on. You remember Paul's words? Press on to the goal, upward cause of the goal of Christ Jesus. Work hard at it. Sovereignty is not this blanket statement where I can say, okay, God's sovereign, I can do whatever I want. No. God is sovereign, so you can have complete confidence if you step out in faith and share the gospel, He'll take care of you. You can have confidence if He calls you to go, and you go, He will use that. God's sovereign, so we don't have to worry. The worst they can do is kill us. That's what sovereignty empowers us to do. It empowers us to be bold and to work hard and not, not in a pull your own self up by your bootstraps way, but because of what Christ has done, we're going to seek Him with everything in us. So let me ask you now, as we come to a close, what is one area of your life that you need to actually apply effort to? Trusting in God's sovereignty to make our minuscule, miserable efforts worthwhile. What is one area that you need to actually apply effort, work to in your spiritual life? For me, and for you as well, I mean sharing the gospel and inviting more people to church. I had a conversation with my neighbor last night, and I have been kicking myself ever since because I didn't say, hey, Y'all free tomorrow morning to go to church? She'd already told me she wasn't, by the way, that they're so busy they can't ever do anything. They love church, but they never go because they're busy. I didn't say it. Next time, I gotta say it. Hey, why don't you come to church with me? Cut some stuff out of your schedule. For some of you, it means starting to fight that pet sin. It means rooting out the things that are there in your heart the whole time. For some of us, it's getting control of your schedule so you can spend time in God's Word, leading your family in devotion times, praying with your kids. But for all of us, whether you're a believer or not, it means repentance. And God's been pulling you that direction the whole time. It's turning from our sin to Christ. And we all need to do it. Would you all pray with me? Father, we come, and we come knowing we have failed over and over and over, and I have failed, even last night. Lord, how many times, God, we praise You that Your grace and Your power, You, you keep sovereignly drawing us back one more time. Just like You did for David, just like You did for his men, but just like You're doing for us this very moment for people in this room. Lord, please, work in our hearts and our minds. Change us. Lord, I pray for that person here who's been considering the claims of Christ, that you would draw them to repentance today. Save them and change their eternal destiny. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.